fitness friends, anxiety warriors, mental health champions, and welcome to 40,000 Steps Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Heimerman, and I am not a licensed healthcare professional, not a doctor, not a therapist, but I'm a guy with 736 days of sobriety, and I've got the gumption to put my story out there. My guest on this episode also is putting himself out there in a big, big way. Ryan Maines, a former firefighter of 14 years, an Iraq war veteran with... PTSD that I simply could not fathom. He started a fundraiser a couple of years ago called Run For Our Lives. Through that, he runs as many Ks every May for as many firefighters who completed suicide the year before. So this past weekend, he set out to run 115K. Now the day that he set out to do so, it was crazy hot. And we're gonna get into that. As I'm looking out the window, I can see it's a beautiful day to get in our 40,000 steps. So let's lace them up and let's get it. Ryan Maines is a damn hero, folks. I can't imagine the number of lives that he's saved, the number of lives that are what they are because he, as a healer, as a first responder, was there to mitigate the damage during his 14 years as a firefighter in Woodstock. He spent four years in the Army. He signed up in 1999, and a year and a half later, he's fighting in the Iraq War. He's patching up soldiers. He had to load one of them into a body bag. He responded to scenes where civilians were killed, some of them just in gruesome fashion, just shocking stuff. Ryan Maines is also a damn hero because of the work he's doing with Run For Our Lives. And it doesn't feel this way to him right now, but he is a damn hero for the feat that he pulled off on Saturday, May 22nd, 2021. He set out to run 115K in honor of all the firefighters who completed suicide last year and to raise money for the Illinois Firefighter Peer Support Network that intervenes and gets treatment and help to firefighters who are under duress and who are battling PTSD. He and his wife, Danielle, have raised a ton of money. They'll probably never fully realize their impact. But on Saturday, with the heat index undoubtedly flirting with 100 degrees. As he approached 60 miles, he had to run more than 71 in order to achieve his goal. As he approached 60 miles, he said, enough is enough. I'm, I'm done. This is too dangerous. I can't go on. He didn't realize what he was doing at the time, but he was, he was sort of raising a fist for all of us who have tried to plow through that brick wall when we're suffering from mental illness, when we're caught in the throes of addiction, and we're not willing to ask for help. So there's some meta type, st- type of stuff going on here because here he is, you know, trying to raise money to battle, you know, PTSD and get people help. 
And here he is, this tall, hulking, strong-looking man out there trying to run 71 miles. And him showing his vulnerability might have been more powerful than any of those nearly 60 miles. Because we all need to see that, right? We need to see that our heroes are vulnerable like us if we're ever going to speak up and say, hey, we need some help. I am just in awe of Ryan and his entire crew and everybody who worked on Run For Our Lives and continues to work toward normalizing the conversations around PTSD and, and mental illness. I know a lot of those folks who aren't willing to speak up, you know, they turn to very uh, destructive coping mechanisms. And I can certainly identify with that. In uh, the spring of 2019, I was very deep in the throes of addiction and I asked for some help and I got into rehab and that led me to where I am today, which is a pretty damn good place. So I want to tell you about Gateway Foundation in Aurora, where I went to rehab. If drugs or alcohol are starting to take over your life, it's time to get honest with yourself and get help. These days, many people are at home or out of work and the temptation to turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with stress and anxiety is stronger than ever before, right? Stop using now before it's too late. Gateway Foundation is here for you and your family with life-saving inpatient as well as virtual programs so you can access the help you need from the privacy of your own home. Don't wait to get help that you or a loved one needs. Most insurance plans are accepted. Call Gateway Foundation now at 877-505-HOPE. That's 877-505-4673 to schedule a free confidential consultation or you can visit gatewayfoundation.org and get the help that you need today. Now, through the work that Ryan and Danielle are doing and everybody associated with the Illinois Firefighter Peer Support Network and Run For Our Lives, hopefully with the work that they're doing, people don't need to end up in rehab like I did. Hopefully when people hear Ryan say, enough is enough, this isn't working for me, this is a threat, and I have the right to say, this is not okay, and I need to stop. Hopefully when they hear that, it'll help them speak up. I know Ryan's not there yet, and I can completely <laughs> recognize, I think all of us runners can when we don't hit our goal, that it takes a, it takes a while for us to, uh, to see the forest for the trees and simply cherish the fact that we can run, we can put one foot in front of the other, and that's a damn blessing in and of itself. But to me, Ryan is a damn hero. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This is my talk with hero of the day, Ryan Maines. So how are you feeling, man? My legs feel a lot better now than they did yesterday. And I actually feel a lot better mentally today than I did yesterday. Well, that's good. Yeah. I was ready to give up running yesterday. Oh, man. I mean, did you feel that way Saturday night or did you just like immediately pass out on Saturday? Uh, no. Yeah, I felt it like Saturday. I I was really just felt really defeated. You know, I just uh, was upset with myself and it actually took me until having a meeting with my running coach this morning uh, he kind of helped snap me out of it a little bit and so i'm definitely in a better spot now well, that's good who's your running coach uh his name is jay zinn 
He's a pose method coach, uh, and he is actually based out of France. Okay, because we we need to name drop and get him some credit because he's getting you back on track. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. He uh, he actually just started a, an app, and that's uh, I was like beta testing it. It was really cool. Um, he'd like make this workout and put it into the app, and it would give me like you know when you're supposed to do it and the proper warm up for it, and pretty nice. Well, it's gracious of you to grant an interview. I, I want to sneak something in here. And this is just a theory. This is my operating theory that maybe if you had lost the beard, you would have finished this thing. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. It's possible. Uh, it's possible. You know, the, the beard caused the drag, you know, um, I wasn't as aerodynamic. I simply, I don't understand how you guys do this in the summer by you guys. Of course, I mean, people with beards, this might just be as well that this is coming from a guy who is very follically challenged <laughs> and very jealous of you, but and what's going on with the beard and the refusal to, to shave it off during the summertime? Um, I'm very stubborn and it's a matter of principle at this point <laughs> in, in the army and the fire service. You can't have a beard. So I couldn't grow one physically for the longest time. Uh, and uh, now that I can both physically and, um, job wise i, I kind of want to keep it for a while if you were to shave it off who would it impact more you or danielle Ooh, that's a good question um probably probably me because i i would just feel naked without it now <laughs> at this point <laughs> but when i look at the website and the photos that she took it's like Man, that is a good looking dude. And, the, <laughs> and for me, see, I, I'm not attracted to guys with beards. So that's, that sounds like that's maybe more of a me problem. <laughs> but I've got a couple of friends who like their wives would lose it if they were to shave their beards. In fact, one of them did it once and there was talk of divorce. So. <laughs> uh, I don't think that is the case. I'm pretty sure Danielle prefers me without it. She just has learned to tolerate me with it. Wow. That is a testament to a healthy marriage. I was going to say, yeah, that, if that's not love, I don't know what is. <laughs> Look, I know that you wanted to complete all 71 on Saturday, but can we just take a moment and acknowledge the fact that you ran almost 60 miles when it was like 85 degrees, muggy as hell, sunny. I mean, this is not the sort of feat that a human should be able to pull off. Have you gotten to a place now where you can acknowledge how awesome that is? Um, no, if I'm being honest, yeah. I, you know, like, I, I, don't get me wrong. I, I know, um, you know, 60 miles is, is a long way to go. And it, um, it is, it is impressive, but it's short of what I wanted. So it's still stings a little that I couldn't get all 71, but you know, you, you spend so much time and, um, like mental headspace preparing for it and like physically preparing for it. And yeah, I don't want to say that it, it feels wasted when you, when you don't get to your goal. Um, but when there's a, an outside factor that like the heat in this case that I, I couldn't overcome it just, you know, it, it wasn't my training that didn't get me there. It wasn't, well, it wasn't my training that didn't get me there. It was, it was other, other factors. And it wasn't you. Yeah. It wasn't you that kept you from getting there. It's literally physiology and weather. Yeah. As you know, I was, I was pissed that things lined up the way that they did because I celebrated two years of sobriety on Friday, which was awesome. 
and we went on this camping trip and this is how I am. Like, I know that you forgot about the interview this morning. It was, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we booked the camping trip and I'm fired up about it and I'm reaching out to you guys about how many miles you want me to do. And Kayla's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> These are on the same weekend. And I was like, damn, you're right. But so I finally turned my phone on yesterday morning. And if this, uh, if this does anything for you, the only reason why I turned my phone on is I was like, holy shit, I need to check and see how Ryan did. And, you know, I saw that the posts stopped on Instagram Saturday evening and like my spidey sense started tingling. It was just like, yeah, I, I don't think he finished. And then I saw the post on Facebook and, you know, I had scrolled down and the first post that I saw was the photo of you getting an IV mm. and you like, let's be clear. You and I have never met in person. We have exclusively bonded over zoom and just sort of like our shared passion and mission. I saw that photo of you and I felt like my heart breaking too, because I knew how important this was to you. And I know the importance of the work. And then I scrolled up and I saw the post, Robert uh, Swiderski, that's the guy who you, who you helped pace at Potawatomi, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Chicago firefighter. Uh, no, um, his dad was, uh, I believe his dad and uncle are retired Chicago PD. Um, so that's what his connection is to that. Yeah. Chicago PD. There we go. There we go. He, uh, he posted the quote and I'm not going to get it wrong. I want to get this verbatim because this is amazing. Ryan's decision to stop is the exact message we are wanting to get across to our first responders and all of us who are stricken with mental illness. It's okay to not be okay. To end the stigma of mental illness, it takes courage to speak up and ask for help and especially to let others know about it. I've been thinking about that quote for the past 24 hours because I know it's going to take a while for you to fully come around and appreciate that. But if you had continued pushing through, you were putting yourself at mortal risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think about somebody who's under duress from mental illness somebody with suicidal ideations, somebody who is a raging alcoholic and continues to push through each and every day and put himself and his family at risk. I had to ask for help. I had to come to terms with the fact that it's okay to not be okay. So when you read that quote, that had to have resonated with you. Yeah, it really did. I don't remember exactly when I saw it. Um, if it was Saturday night or if it wasn't until the following day but yeah it definitely resonated and it's but it's not something that I considered until I saw it and it's it's a valid point it's such a good parallel the more um thought I put into it is you know like I didn't want to give up I wanted to keep pushing keep trudging along you know regardless of the toll it was taking on me physically and uh, that that's, man, that's such a good parallel for what I was going through before. You know, you just, you've got it set in your mind that this is how it's going to be. And regardless of the, of the tolls it's taking on your body, you, uh, you keep pushing until, you know, you reach the point of no return. And it sucks to be the guy who has to deliver that message. <laughs> <laughs> he does, yeah. Yeah, there's no denying that. However, I mean, this is so similar to what happened with both of us in the spring of 2019, where 
you ended up going to inpatient. I went to rehab. I mean, it's so hard to pull the trigger on those decisions and to say, okay, enough is enough. This is no longer good for me. This is no longer sustainable. I need to get some help. So tell me about the race a little bit. Did you start out too fast? Um, you know, that's Daniel said you were killing it. I was. And when I hear somebody was killing it, I think about all the times I was killing it and that I died when I hit the wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I going into it, um, knowing what the weather was going to be, I was back and forth in my mind about how I wanted to, how I wanted to go about it, uh, in regards to running at night. And what I ultimately decided to do, I, I was back and forth between, do I want to push harder than I was planning to try and get as far as I can before it gets hot? Yeah. Or do I want to just stick with the game plan and see where it gets me? And what I decided was I was going to just wait and see how I felt that night and let it play out. And so when I started, I felt good. I felt really strong. Um, so I thought, okay, let's do it. Let's Let's get as much done as we can before the heat gets to be unbearable. Yeah, you want to make some hay, right? Right, exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, I don't know if uh, if that would have changed anything. Um, it was it was a calculated risk, I think. I, I wasn't going crazy by any means. You know, I wasn't, like, trying to sprint anything. But it was a, it was a like, incremental increase in the pace that... I thought I could sustain. So how far along were you when the, when you started to feel the heat and when you started to, to think, man, this is only going to get worse. Um, I was pretty aware of the heat early on, or the, I shouldn't say the heat, the humidity, um, yeah. reaching that first aid station. I actually asked my pacer to check the bladder of my, my hydration vest because I thought I had forgotten to close it because my back was so wet it felt like the water was spilling out onto my back and down my, down my shorts. I sort of look, I was like, I, I must've sprung a leak or something. It was sweat. I, I was, it was just that humid that I was sweating so profusely, but I, I thought I was doing a good job of hydrating. So the, the humidity was kind of a factor from the start, but I think the heat really started to get to me probably around mile 25 or 30. Cause that's when the sun, the sun was up at this point and it was starting to starting to get warmer and it wasn't just the humidity now it's the the humidity and the sun beating down on you too and now a lot of people listen to this podcast who are runners but some are not and some people don't realize that a marathon is 26.2 miles so what you just said is that as the sun is coming up you've completed a marathon yeah and it's then that it's like okay i have to do almost two more of these because <laughs> 71 miles is like two and two thirds marathons to, to yeah. give people some perspective. Did you reach a point at all? Like I, I read so much from about ultra marathoners and it comes to a point with a lot of them where they will, they will literally become so fatigued that they will hallucinate. Did you have any of that as you got like up into the 40, 50 mile range? Yeah. Yes. And yes and no, you know, it's not like the, I, I've read where people, you know, are like seeing people that aren't there. Uh, it wasn't anything like that, but it was a lot of, uh, you know, a, a bird jumps off a, a branch next to me and it 
seems so much more significant than it was. You know, it's like, whoa, what was that? It was, it was just. It's like a big cat, like a puma, but no, it's a bird. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. When, when was it that you were at a first aid station? Because there was a point where you were going to get an IV, but they, they couldn't locate a vein, right? Um, yeah, they, uh, that was at, that was at mile 55. Okay. So yeah, I, I came into the aid station and I was, um, I was pretty out of it. They had a, a submersion chair where you, it's like a, it's like a lawn chair with coolers where the, for the armrests and you fill it with ice and water and you put your forearms in there and it helps cool your, your body down faster. So I, I sat down in that and, um, that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't cooling me down like it should have. And so we started, you know, packing my armpits and everything with ice. And then the, there happened to be um, an ambulance there just to support me. They came over and started doing vitals and like, all right, yeah, we, we think you need an IV. I wasn't really in a position to argue at that point. I had Danielle <laughs> and my dad in my ear, you know, <laughs> just listen to what they're telling you, nod your head. It took them several tries to uh, establish the IV because my veins were not cooperating because I was so dehydrated. They were hard to find. And once they did find them, they kept the uh, vein kept blowing, um, wouldn't accept the fluid. And I mean, you as a first responder, I mean, you, you understand this stuff. I mean, how weird is it? Uh, you know, being somebody who is like an, a born healer like you are being on that side of it and seeing somebody not be able to locate a vein. I mean, I know that you're, that you're not all there, but do you remember kind of what was going through your mind as they tried to find that vein? Because didn't you get up and, and run a little bit more after that? Uh, I did. Yeah. I think maybe the gravity of it hit me a little bit more after they um, had a couple different IVs blow, you know? Um, and I, I had some, um, some mild, like heart rhythm changes that they were seeing on the monitor. So that kind of made me realize how, how dehydrated I really was, but they were able to get about 600 um, cc's of fluid in me before I left. And that made a huge difference. I actually, I felt pretty good um, leaving that aid station and I was able to get another two miles in of feeling really pretty, pretty solid. But then all of a sudden it just like, I fell off the cliff again and I, like the heat started to get to me and um, I got, uh, I just started to feel real like tired and, and lethargic. And I knew whatever they had done to help me, it was gone at that point. You just burned right through it. Yeah. Yeah. And then it becomes decision time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then it became, okay, let's pick a tree and just make it to that tree and reevaluate and so I, I did a lot of that over the next three miles and uh, there was happened to be a gas station right along the trail that the, my support crew made an impromptu aid station at. And uh, I sat down there in the shade for a couple of minutes and, you know, everybody was in my ear about, do you want to finish? Do you think you should keep going? And at that point I'm still, you know, I, I need to finish. I need to keep going. So I said, let's go to, the, there was another, impromptu aid station set up about a mile away i said let's let's just get to that one and then i'll reevaluate and the walk what walk might even be too strong of a term <laughs> to to that aid station um which it was just like the baton death march i uh 
once I got there, I, I think I knew I was, I think I knew I was done. It was just wrestling with the admitting that, that I couldn't go on. Yeah. So you did get to that next aid station and, and then you, and then you cut it off, right? Yeah. After a lot of, uh, mental gymnastics, um, with very little brain at that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a big mat to work with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, you know, I kept trying to talk, I kept trying to like hype myself up about, you know, cause I, I think the next aid station was like two miles from where I was at. I just kept, you know, come on, let's go get off your feet, get off your feet. I think I might've even tried to stand up a couple of times, but like felt lightheaded and, yeah. you know, had to sit back down right away. But, well, I, I just want to hop in here and say it again, that what you did was absolutely amazing. It's incredible. I'm inspired by you. I know that anybody who has any glimpse of what you accomplished on Saturday will be as well. I know that you have come a long, long way in a couple of years in terms of understanding that it's okay to not be okay. However, it takes a lifetime of sort of reprogramming in order to kind of break up what are these long ingrained thought processes. So we're talking about dating all the way back to, I mean, let's kind of get into the backstory. If it feels like we're breezing over any of this stuff, it's because your incredible wife, Danielle, joined a few weeks ago for the podcast. And, and we had a great conversation about the timeline of you getting some help and you guys winning that, uh, the pension case, your disability pension. But let's kind of go further back in the way back machine. Like your dad was a firefighter and you grew up at the firehouse. Tell me what it was like, you know, growing into your teenage years and sort of making the decision that you wanted to be a firefighter. Uh, how did that come along? Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm not really sure. I guess it was, like you said, it was just always something that was there in the periphery growing up around the firehouse. And, you know, it was just, I, maybe I just took it for granted that it was there um, until probably my junior or senior year of high school, I started thinking about, I, I maybe that is something that I, that I would want to do. You know, it, it, it seems cool, you know, and maybe I didn't have the uh, altruistic intent at the time, but you know, I, I was drawn to it because it's, it's a cool job. It's a fun job. It is. Point me to a, a, a young kid who doesn't at some point say, I want to be a firefighter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but did you recognize like when you were a teenager and stuff that, that you had sort of that compassionate element? I know you said it wasn't necessarily altruistic, but like if you saw somebody in pain, did you feel compelled to help that person? Did you have that going on? You know, I don't, I don't remember having that. Although I do remember, um, something that my dad said that always stuck out with me. Um, when, boy, I was probably seven or eight, my dad's dad, lived in town with us and he had a heart attack and my dad said that he felt helpless. He was not a paramedic at the time. He said he felt helpless and that was something that he never wanted to feel again. And so that was what inspired him to go to paramedic school and, and the fire academy and, you know, um, pursue that career. And I think that that more than anything um, stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. And you still realize that today, like, those moments, they stick with you and they're, they're sort of like wired somewhere into your, into your brain and you might not realize it. You graduate from high school and, and, and you enlist. Is that, is that how things played out? And you, um, more or less, I, uh, 
I didn't go to college after high school. I worked odd jobs. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, but then uh, probably within a year of getting out of high school, uh, I enlisted. Well, I enlisted in 99 and I graduated in 98. So it was like eight months of working on jobs before um, I thought, well, I don't really have direction. I'm not doing anything worthwhile. The army can help me with both of those things. And so you enlist in 99 with obviously no idea that 9-11 is going to happen. Sure. Yeah. And that changed everything, right? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't... uh... (laughs) I didn't know that I was signing up to go to war, uh, as silly as that may sound uh, now. Um, but the 18-year-old me only um, had only ever experienced uh, Desert Storm, and that was such a small time, I guess, in my life that it, it didn't occur to me that that was a possibility. I wouldn't change anything, um, you know, because I... I made such lifelong friends and had so many positive experiences. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't change it, but I certainly didn't know what I was signing up for. Now at the risk of, you know, opening up old wounds and dredging some of this stuff up. I mean, talk to me a little bit about some of the stuff that you saw during, during your tour. I mean, this, this is the stuff that, that leads to PTSD Mm -hmm. and put you where you were, I guess, give me the low light reel of some of the stuff that you saw while you're over there. Putting a, Putting a, an American soldier in a body bag um, was hard. Crossing the border from um, Kuwait into Iraq, you you know what you're doing. You understand, you know. Okay, we're we're going to war. I understand this. Um, you know, you start people start shooting at you. Okay, yeah, I, I understand that this is dangerous. People are shooting at me, but physically putting someone in a in a body bag it uh really like slaps you in the face with the reality of 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 it was this somebody in your unit uh it wasn't he was from a neighboring battalion um they uh they had gotten ambushed and he uh he took a shot to the leg Mm -hmm. and uh, it hit his femoral artery and they uh they tried to stabilize him and started evacuating him um, to the nearest hospital, nearest field hospital. Um, My unit happened to be in between the ambush and the field hospital. And they stopped at at us basically because they knew he wasn't going to make it and they needed to be able to focus on their other patients. So they dropped him with us, continued on to the field hospital with their other patients. And we, um, there was nothing that we could do for him. And that's my God, that harkens back to when your dad said that when he explained that helpless feeling to you, Yeah. now you're feeling it. And this is your job to patch people up and, and to heal people. That's helplessness. Yeah, it really was. And now, I mean, whether it be members of your unit or civilians for that matter. I mean, seeing, you know, the casualties with civilians, I assume you saw a lot of that as well. Yeah. Um, some of the tactics that were being used, um, by the, the Iraqis were, um, you know, hiding amongst civilians and 
or just miscommunication of civilians not understanding that they shouldn't be driving at this line of tanks, you know, or just things like that. Um, innocent people dying unnecessarily uh, is is part of war, and it um, it, it probably hurts more than the soldiers, you know. You had four years in the army, correct? Yeah. You come home, you get a job, a full-time job with the Woodstock fire department. And then as a first responder, I know you love the fast paced nature of it. Uh, you probably love the adrenaline of the job, but once again, you're the one rushing into those situations to help folks. And, you know, Danielle had mentioned to me that what came with that territory was that you you responded to a scene where where a little boy was killed in a car crash, correct? Uh, it was a it was a hit and run. Um, the child was hit by a car and the car kept going. And he didn't die immediately. Um, technically, no, but um, he was pronounced when, once we brought him to the hospital but he, uh, he was pulseless once we got there. Another situation where there's absolutely nothing you could have done. Yeah. In that moment though, does that make sense to you that there's nothing you could have done? Same no. thing with the American soldier. Like, no, absolutely not. You know, you just, your job is to get there and to, and to save people not you know, so the fact that there's nothing you can do doesn't enter into your mind. And do you have kids at that point? Uh, I do. Yeah. Jude would have been about how old? I think Jude would have been like four and Lucy would have been a baby. And and this little boy was six, if I remember right. Yeah. My God, a, a, as a father, it just, it just hits you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really did. And then was it like the next day that what was, what were the circumstances leading up to you responding to the woman who was involved in that? Um, it was my next shift, so it would have been 72 hours later. We got a call to go to a house for, a, a, I think they just called it a medical emergency. So when we got there, the county sheriffs were already on the scene. And um, what had happened was the, the driver was an elderly woman. It was storming very bad that night. It was, um, so it's dark, um, visibility's low. The woman thought that she hit a tree branch. So she kept going, took her car in to get fixed like a day or two later. And the mechanic saw the evidence of the accident and called the police. And so they went and notified her and understandably she became very upset. And that's when they called for us. And so you respond and, and that's, I mean, that's, that's gotta be, just as hard. Yeah, I think I think that was worse because it it brought back my own anguish of of not being able to help the kid and now realizing that this woman also has that same pain and there's nothing that you can do. And she's older. Yeah. She's supposed to be enjoying her golden years. Yeah. Gosh. I know this stuff is brutal to talk about, but this is, like I said, I, this this is the stuff that leads to such severe PTSD that all these firefighters and first responders are walking around with every day. And 
it was what in, in like March of 2019 that you were just kind of an empty shell of yourself, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. When, when was it that you guys started up run for our lives? Um, I think I probably had my first meeting June or July of 19. Okay. So that's, that's after you had gotten some help. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that was what in like DC or, or thereabouts where you went, uh, for in treatment. Yeah, it was in Maryland. Um, there's a, excuse me, there's a facility uh, specifically for firefighters. Um, and that's, that's the one I was able to get into. And so you guys start up run for our lives. And then what was it in the fall where deja vu all over again, where, where, where you sort of start to, um, I can't even place the word degrade and you, and you start end up getting back into that same place where you're not yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair, uh, that's a fair word to use. Um, I think it probably started much sooner than that though. I think the, the ground started coming out from under my feet almost immediately within the first two weeks of, of being back on shift full time. I had several, um, traumatic calls that, um, I probably never really recovered from. And so I spent the entirety basically of my time between in treatment and leaving the job, trying to just hold on to whatever I got, you know? And you're just, you're fighting, right? You're fighting because this, because what you're doing as a healer to you, that's such a central part of your identity, right? Yeah. And I don't think I even really acknowledged that that was the case um, because I've never, there are firemen that are eat, drink and breathe firefighting. You know, that's uh, every t-shirt they own is a firefighter shirt and their house is nothing but fire hydrants and Dalmatians. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That it's just not who I was. Um, I thought that it wasn't as big of a part of who I am uh, until I had to stop doing it. So many guys, will turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with the PTSD that you were dealing with. So for anybody who's listening to this, and that's where you are right now, I urge you to reach out to my good friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. Folks, if you or someone you love might have an issue with drinking, drugs, mental illness, or anger management, it's time to get in touch with my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois, it's time to set up an assessment. You've got nothing to lose. Depending on your situation, the assessment could be free. If you're loaded, it's going to run you 80 bucks. That's the max. If you're a veteran and NIU student or unemployed, you're going to get a break. My friend Ron Parch and his team use their 25 years of experience to build an individualized treatment plan that's confidential and effective. They approach people in distress with respect, and I cannot stress enough how important that is to feel respected when you're going through something. DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers has offices in Sycamore, Plano, and Crystal Lake. Check out DUISycamore.com or call 815-895-9000 and set up an evaluation today. Write this down, folks. Call 815-895-9000, visit DUISycamore.com, or you can email DUIBHS at gmail.com. So yes, Ryan, a lot of people do turn to alcohol and to drugs. That wasn't you. How, how were you coping? How, how were you dealing with the PTSD and, and the trauma and all that ugly stuff? I think I, I think I used running 
was kind of my my crutch, my addiction, I guess you could say. I don't know why I, I didn't turn to drugs or alcohol. Dumb luck, I suppose. I think, yeah, I just, uh, denial and running, I think, were my big go-tos. I can identify with that, though, that, if yeah, if you just keep running, everything's normal. Right, yeah. That's, I you know, before I checked into treatment, I was like three quarters of the way through training for a marathon. And it was like, hey, as long as I stick to my training plan, I'm fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> still living my life. I'm still here. Well, let's skip forward to where things are now. How is it? Like, what is your program? Like, obviously running is still a huge part of it, but, you know, ketamine treatments, therapy, like, how do you, how do you stay on the straight and narrow? How, how do you be a, a kick-ass dad and a wonderful husband? Because I know, I know that's you. Kind of all of those things keep the homeostasis for me, you know? Um, and it's like, if, if the running isn't doing it for me this week, then I, you know, I have my therapy or I have the meds or I have my support system and my, and my wife and my, and my family, you know? So there's like, there's so many different fail safes set up for me. And that isn't to say that I can't fail because that's unrealistic, but I feel like I have as many things keeping me going as, as could be possible, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, it absolutely does. And <laughs> I don't know if you really recognize what you just said, that it's okay to fail. Yeah. And I mean, let's rewind 36 hours. It's okay to fail, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's a perception of failure that is only coming from you. You know what I'm saying? That's probably the hardest part is, you know, um, I had this own, my own expectation of what it should have been. And I, it didn't meet that exact expectation. So in my head, that is a failure. And that is something that we, uh, you know, we shouldn't do. And it's so easy to say, I shouldn't, I shouldn't look at it as a failure, but we all know it doesn't stop us from thinking it. I think you've got a lifetime of the wiring of the brain that you're battling against with that. Right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but I suppose there's, there's strength in being able to, um, recognize that I still have that weakness. You know, I still have that, that wiring. Yeah. Just the, the self-awareness is huge. Yeah. I mean, I can identify it with that when I think about, you know, my own advocacy as I'm agonizing over how many people are listening to the podcast, how many Instagram followers do I have? How many people it's, it's, oh, it's, it's so gross. I, <laughs> I can't stand it. Yeah. However, for me, like I was so massively depressed last week. Like I just could not get out of it. And yet it got toward the end of the week and out of the blue, I heard from three different people who asked for help, like asked me for pointers. That was everything to me. And for you guys, you've raised tens of thousands of dollars for the Illinois Firefighter Peer Support Network. And you have all those people out there reading for you and all these folks who, who you're inspiring. And you hear from people too, don't you? I do, yeah. Um, I've actually had a few people recently um, reach out to uh, just either say, you know, thank you for speaking out or, hey, I'm, I'm struggling right now. Would you mind talking with me for a little? 
And, uh, you know, I, I'm not a peer support person through Illinois firefighter peer support just because, um, I'm not ready for that yet, but I am completely happy talking to someone that is going through what I went through because it's important to have somebody that can relate. One of the things that, that I struggle with these days is that you know, like our daughters are seven and I will see some of my stuff in them. Like I see that my daughter, Anna is incredibly sensitive. I know that she's just seven, but I can identify some of those insecurities with Elise. I can identify that she is so starved for attention. Just, I mean, cause I'm an attention whore. Let's just, let's just call it what it is. And I see that in her. Is that going on in your world a little bit at all? Like, like with Jude? Yeah, very much so. Um, Jude is probably the most empathetic person I've ever met in my life. If a tertiary person in my life passes away, someone that I know, but don't know, you know, and he hears about it, like he'll get, he'll get genuinely sad and, and like say, tell me how sorry he is for my loss. And like, he just like feels things on such a deep level. And, uh, but that he also, that creates a lot of worry for him. So I internalize that as, as he saw me being in the depths of my PTSD, worrying about everything that has rubbed off on him. And man, I've had hours <laughs> at my therapist um, trying to work that out and, you know, understand that he, he did, he didn't catch worry from me. You know, <laughs> I, I heard about the, I heard about the middle finger incident. <laughs> yeah. Can you walk me through how that played out? Because he got so sick that he, that school required him to take a COVID test, right? That was a thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless his little heart. Um, he got really mad. Um, the ice cream truck came around last week or whenever it was. Oh. And that that music yeah um you know uh the pied piper called and uh <laughs> so danielle gave him some money and he and his sister got a popsicle or whatever and um put it in the freezer for after dinner on the caveat that they have to finish their dinner you know natural well he was too full to finish his dinner so i said you can't have your ice cream tonight try to have it tomorrow and that was unacceptable he got mad he got pissed <laughs> and <laughs> threw a bit of a tantrum so i took his electronics away and sent him up to his room and he had to go down to the basement to uh, to plug his uh, nintendo switch in and was so angry while he was down there he was um he was throwing the bird <laughs> to no one to <laughs> just to the air he was so angry but he was so upset and so ashamed of himself for doing that, that it caused him to get physically sick. He threw up uh, that night and um, we figured out that it was because he was upset and he fessed up to what he had done and was very apologetic. And so we tried to, you know, talk with him and, make him understand that while yes, it's inappropriate, it's not 
the worst thing in the world. You're not a bad person, you know? Yeah. Do not deny yourself those feelings. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, we thought everything was good. He went to school the next day and was still upset by it and threw up again at school. Oh. <laughs> so we had to send him and his sister home uh, oh. and had to get the COVID test. So he had to stay home the next day also, yeah. um, both of them. Do you, in general, do you try to have, because everybody assumes that, you know, kids can't handle adult conversations that like, I, I was so worried about my kids with e-learning at the top of the pandemic, but they roll with the punches. They're resilient. Mm-hmm. Like, I think about people who who do baby talk with their kids through like they being <laughs> like three or four years old. How much of a focus do you make it to have adult conversations with your kids? Like, like, a, like this is a perfect uh, example, right? Yeah. Um, I guess adult conversations with age appropriate language mm-hmm. is is what we try and do. And it, uh, I'd say that as we ramp up towards the event of Run for Our Lives, those conversations happen more frequently mm-hmm. um, because there's questions being asked about what Dad's doing and what Run for Our Lives means, and the interviews that I'm that I'm doing. Um, you know, they hear bits and pieces of them, and um, so definitely those conversations happen more. I'd say from like March until May. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, they kind of peter off and as we get further away from, from this event and the the thoughts are, you know, the worries about things dad saying aren't, aren't quite there. You have to know that in the long haul, though, that you're you're better off with, with them knowing what's going on. At least that's what I'm banking on, man. Yeah. The fact that my kids know that I'm sober and that when I went to the doctor, I just wasn't going for a checkup that I was going to get my brain right and I take my medications because my brain doesn't work like other people's brains do. I'm banking on in the long haul that, uh, that, that paying dividends. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think it's good to, to teach them early that things like that can happen and it's recoverable and, um, you know, it's okay because the more you can prepare them for that, early, I think then the more success you're setting them up for. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people would say on the surface that you guys have this incredibly happy ending. You were just awarded your, your full disability pension and congratulations once again on that. Thank you. You're having a ton of success with run for our lives. You've got a beautiful family, but we're never quite out of the woods, right? It is, isn't it important to kind of, you know, keep, keep making this noise because it's the same thing with me. Like I was such a high functioning alcoholic. I think that we need to continue to have happy endings (laughs) as we're going forward. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, is a high functioning with it is means that people don't quite know that it's there. You know, it's easy. We're good at hiding the problem. So it's important for us to, or at least for me anyways, um, to continue to acknowledge my PTSD's existence and that I have to continue to work on it. And, you know, there is no status quo. It's I'm constantly working on, on keeping myself well. And yeah, just uh, knowing that, that that's there and that's good and that's important and teaching the lessons through action by that. Well, a year from now or nine or 10 months from now, 
I'm going to make sure that I don't double book myself for the weekend of run for our lives. Maybe actually, maybe you can help me out. Let's safeguard against the heat and let's, let's do it in April. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I like, I like maybe mental health awareness. Month. Of course. Of course. That was the significance of, of choosing it in it. June is Suicide Awareness Month, so um, between the two, I think May is probably better. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say let's let's air earlier. Man, that's the Midwest, though. You just—it's a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah, but man, I I'm I am thrilled once again with everything that you're doing, and I personally can't thank you enough because what you're doing makes it easier for for me and so many people to talk about these things, and I and I hope that that that's never lost on you. I think what we need to do is we need to take, like as a journalist, we always kept like the warm and fuzzy drawer of like, because you're going to hear it about everything in journalism. Like if you misspelled little Johnny's name, (laughs) little Johnny's (laughs) tribe is going to be very upset with you. Probably every time your byline comes up, they're going to be gritting their teeth. But you know, you never hear from, you very seldom hear from people when you're doing something good. So as we hear from folks who were helping out, I think we need to file those and keep them readily available so we can go back and revisit those whenever we, uh, whenever we have our doubts about the impact that we're having. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good thing to keep in mind. I, um, I keep a list of um, like affirmations uh, on my phone that uh, every, every now and again, I'll need to dip back in that well and just remind myself of how far I've come and, and how much work I've actually put in. And it, uh, it just kind of helps keep you, keep you going when you need that little something extra. Absolutely. I just picked up a new tip last week and that's every Friday evening, writing up all my wins from that week. Nice. Because I get so caught up in the fact that I'm not accomplishing enough, that I'm not being a good enough worker bee. It's like, yeah, write down your wins, man. And I did it and it, and it felt great before we went camping. It was just like, okay, then I can enjoy my weekend. If I simply let myself off the hook for all the other junk and look at the stuff that I accomplished. But yeah, that's nice. That's good. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. And thank you for all the work you're doing. The message that you put out, uh, I think is important. It makes it easier for, for me to talk, to, to hear you too. So thank you. Solidarity, brother. All right. Well, thanks again. And we'll catch up soon. All right. All right. Sounds good. All right. See you, Ryan. Okay. Bye. All right, gang, did that do anything for you? I know it did a lot for me next time that I am in it. Next time I am anxious, depressed, just feeling like hell. I'm going to think about Ryan and I'm going to think about the fact that he said that it's okay to not be okay. Because we say it all the time, right? We've been saying that for the past year and change since this pandemic started. People are coming around to the fact that mental health matters and that we need to acknowledge our feelings and face up to the fact that it's okay to not be okay. But thanks to Ryan and the message that he sent, we're not just going to keep saying it. We're going to start acting on it. We're going to start supporting each other. I'm putting that out into the, uh, into the cosmos with the hope that it sticks. And I can't thank Ryan enough for sending that message. Folks, I'm very excited about the next guest we're going to have on the show, Miguel Reyes of Staying Fit ODAT, O-D-A-A-T, which those of us in recovery know as One Day at a Time. It is a fitness group for people in long-term recovery. 
He is a runner. He is a dad. He's a lot of things that I relate to. Tell all your friends about the podcast. Ask them to not only listen, but to give it a review, give it a rating. Hopefully you give it five stars, but be straight with me. If you think it's mediocre, give it three stars, maybe four, maybe meet me halfway. But folks, the more that you review and rate the podcast, the more likely it's going to get in front of people's eyes and get into their ears so we can keep building this community. So thanks for sharing that around. Thank you so much for being here and for supporting each other, for loving one another. Because remember, folks, if it feels like things are falling apart outside of this space, right in here, right here, where we are, we are always coming together. Love you, folks, and we'll talk to you soon. See ya. Thank you.